Hello, welcome to the next episode of Eldritch Girl. Um, so this is a new bonus episode with Johannes T. Evans. Uh, Johannes, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, uh, my name is uh, Johannes T. Evans, as said. Uh, pronouns are he, him, is. I am a trans mask author from uh, the south of Wales, living on the west coast of Ireland, and I write a lot. I write a big mix of um, fantasy, primarily within the uh, same universe, which is a magical parallel to Earth called Magic Beholden. Cool. Um, are you going to read an extract from that world? I am. Um, so my business model is a little bit different, where I sort of publish um, a mix of um, short stories, novels and serials all within the same universe. Uh, one of the things I do is I post serials chapter by chapter as I go. Um, and then later on, I uh, publish them up and republish them as ebook. Even after completion, the serials will remain online in their previously edited form. But this one is one of the serials that's currently ongoing. It's nearly at the end. We're nearly finished. The end is in sight. Um, so this is Powder and Feathers. It's a dark romance between a fallen angel and um, an incredibly depressed and cynical art student. Um, and uh, the extract is from uh, chapter 20. So it's a fair ways into the book. Um, very, very excited about this. Uh, they're, they're horrible, beastly men. Uh, Powder and Feathers is about um, Jean-Pierre Delacroix, who is a fallen angel. He is manipulative, he's terrible. He has undiagnosed BPD. Um, he is uh, trans and very, very sexy. Um, and M.A. Deverell, uh, his now partner is um, extremely depressed alcoholic artist when he meets Jean-Pierre and then goes through certain uh, character development. So uh, the context for this uh, passage is that M.A. was a smoker when he and Jean-Pierre met. Um, and in the past uh, few weeks, he's developed um, a sudden, what Jean-Pierre tells him is likely an allergy uh, to cigarettes, where whenever he tries to smoke, he'll like sort of immediately throw up. Um, and this extract is off the back of M.A. Uh, meeting with his father and um, his father basically asking, what have you done to your mouth? And pointing out that, um, that Jean-Pierre has laid an enchantment um, on the inside of the roof of his mouth, which he did while M.A. was sleeping um, some weeks ago to basically make him stop smoking because Jean doesn't like it. So, you know, terrible, terrible men, Ooh. as I said. Yeah. And before I Before I read from this... Jean-Pierre has a really, really strong Parisian accent that I'm not going to do. Um, <laughs> and uh, M.A. is a posh Dubliner, which is a le less strong accent. I'm also not going to do that. Um, but yeah. I wouldn't harm you, Jean-Pierre said softly. I love you. You love me, they repeated. Surprises you? Jean-Pierre asked. A little bit, May said. Why is that? Because my dad came over before I came around here, May said lowly, staring in the vicinity of Jean-Pierre's naked chest instead of meeting his gaze. His voice was hoarse and thick. Asked what the fuck my new boyfriend had done to my mouth. Kissed it? No. Or the enchantment, May said. Jean-Pierre leaned back. Ah, he said softly. In chain, swapping to Emma's POV. Seen Jean-Pierre do this before, but it didn't make it any less frightening. Jean-Pierre's small prim smile became keener, sharper, turning into something more like a smirk. His eyes became clearer, the colour colder. He raised his chin and all of a sudden, Jean-Pierre seemed that much taller, that much bigger than M.A. was. The sound of M.A.'s gulp rang in his own ears. Well, I asked. Well, Jean-Pierre replied, giving a neat little shrug of his shoulders, sitting up straight where he straddled M.A.'s belly. He was smiling, showing his teeth. And he was looking down at M.A. as though M.A. was something newly fascinating, newly delightful. His fingers tracing a vague pattern over M.A.'s chest that made M.A. at once quake with fear and want to spread his legs wider. So calm. I thought perhaps he would be angry, like the first time. I'm angry, M.A. said, trying to keep his breathing in check. I'm fucking angry, Jean. I'm pissed. You can't just, you can't just do that to someone. Why not? Jean-Pierre asked. And he tilted his head to the side in a way that was so entirely inhuman that it actually made M.A. shiver. And based on the way Jean-Pierre pressed his lips together, stifling a giggle, he'd done it on purpose. Let me. I didn't let you, M.A. said, shoving Jean-Pierre off him and standing to his feet. 
Jean-Pierre was stood right in front of him in a heartbeat, leaning over him. I didn't know you'd done anything. Jean-Pierre's smile softened. They looked down at Emmy for a moment, arching one perfect blonde eyebrow. Didn't you? He asked softly. Ooh. Bastards. Okay. Bastards. <laughs> I really love that. Um, it's, yeah... I love the um, the power dynamics between non-humans and humans and that mm. sort of the the exploration of boundary crossing or the, the toxicity of it or the unhealthy nature of it um, and how you overcome mm-hmm. that or do you or can you or how does that work with the personalities and how do the characters develop and all of that kind of stuff. I love, um, I love reading stories like that. Um, so... I was wondering then, so uh, for you, mm-hmm. you write this a lot. <laughs> um, and I write this a lot, yeah. <laughs> um, for you then, what makes a relationship between a human and a non-human, especially with that kind of a power imbalance, so interesting or compelling to write? It's complicated because I think one of the things that most appeals to me about um, immortals and something that I don't see explored in fiction um, enough but also like in the specific way that I like is that mortals by definition have this power over the world around them that mortals don't in that like um like Jean-Pierre walks into a room um and he and Emma both look at a desk right he sees a desk and all he's ever known is a desk him a desk is a really really simple thing Jean-Pierre who um, he fell in like the early 1700s and he fell to a small um, peasant village um, before um, he was later, it was, it was later paid for him to go into Paris and become trained to be a doctor. Him, the desk was not conceivable the time when he fell. He didn't conceive of a desk until years later, he went into Paris for the first time. And, that seems like such a simple thing, a desk. You know, it, it's just it's a table, but it's a special table for writing, for reading and writing. It's a special table for a specific purpose. It's shaped in a particular way. All the desks that Jean-Pierre has seen, the category of desk in his mind is different to anything else. And it's not the same as, um, as knowing people and historical events, because that is one thing. When you look at like those tiny mundane things, they sculpt so much of how you respond to the most basic of situations, whether it's your exposure to a skill, whether it's your exposure to an idea. Um, it's in those mundane things that you gain a lot of power over situations where, like, if you don't know those things, you don't even conceive that power the factor. And going from, like, small, like, the desk is just an example. The desk represents other things. Like, when you go from, like, those small details and look at them in a wider scale, You have immortals who have experienced and who perceive the world in a way that mortals never can because, like, you know, they have limited time. Even the most worldly of mortals don't have that um, length of experiences and broadness of experiences and diversity of experiences. Then you have Emma and Jean-Pierre and such things as, you know, Jean-Pierre is um, a French revolutionary and he's fought in other revolutions as well he understands liberty he's obsessed with liberty he's obsessed with freedom um and yet something as simple as consent something like an enchantment um and especially like it's noted like this is a dangerous enchantment he it, it could have gone wrong and it could have gone really really badly even if ma had known it was being done and it's it's such a it's such a simple and obvious like um overwrite of like ma's personal boundaries and then Jean-Pierre says, well, if he didn't like it, you'd leave. M.A. doesn't leave. And when M.A. does leave, he comes back. And that's the whole basis of their relationship, where M.A. is saying, you can't treat me like this. You can't do things that I don't consent to. And Jean, who says, you are consenting because I keep telling you to run. My brothers have both advised you to run. You can run. You can leave. I won't come after you. I've told you this. But you stay. In staying you're consenting and later on that dynamic shifts and changes and like 
it's noted that um like jean-pierre um and ma both have like a lot of like quite significant traumas and um and explore it's explored later on that part of the reason that jean-pierre has such a fractured idea of his own self um and ideas like um consent and bodily autonomy is because like his own boundaries have been crossed in different ways um not just via victimization, but also like um, like in different selves, like as a soldier, as a revolutionary, as a doctor, um, as an angel, etc. The thing is that like it's noted that Jean Pierre, part of the way that he shows affection, is in trying to control other people because he's like basically like, well, if I didn't care about you, I wouldn't try and control you. If you don't, if you actually cared about me, you'd have a vested interest in wanting to make sure that I do what you want. It's, it's a really, really horrible, twisted way of looking at it, especially because he's had like other boyfriends from um, from like different uh, places and like this dynamic has changed um, and been tempered over time. M.A. stays and basically learns to play Jean-Pierre's game with him. Jean-Pierre loves it because he's, you know, gremlin. <laughs> They are made for each other. And it's it's really, really fun to write this dynamic where it looks from the beginning more clearly like um, one person being victimized by another, which is the initial starting point. As you go on and as M.A. becomes more comfortable, not just with Jean-Pierre, but with his brothers, with the family and is adopted sort of into it, M.A. is learns to hold his own in powder and feathers in later books as well. It's going to become even more significant and more important as we go on in plot lines within Magic Beholden. Um, and M.A. Isn't, isn't just being victimized. Um, he's very much choosing to match Jean-Pierre blow for blow on some things, and if not that, go further. And it's really, really interesting to explore that um, negative character development. I, I, I hesitate to call it corruption because Jean-Pierre is leaning on instincts that M.A. already has. Um, and is instead just encouraging him to embrace them. Yeah, it's um, it's really, really exciting and fun to play with those dynamics. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you have like two characters who are not equally traumatised, but like um, both have um, things that they bring to that relationship. So like, for example, if you don't, if you have somebody who doesn't have or has not historically had a lot of agency, mm-hmm. And suddenly they find themselves in a position where they are capable of having some element of power over another person. Mm. And that person ostensibly does have more power than they do. And yet they can push back. That becomes addictive Mm. in a way, I think, doesn't it? Like, because it's, it's a way of, it's that, it's that kind of like, you know, that they can do whatever they want to you. Mm. But what they do is within some sort of twisted kind of bounds of reason. Yeah. And especially because these are like two people that are sort of making up the rules and like within the context, there is stuff that Jean-Pierre and Emma will do to each other later on, which will um, create a lot of conflict with other characters where the characters will go, what the fuck are either of you at? And they'll go, it's none of your fucking business. Yeah. And... (laughs) There are oh, there are things that Jean Pierre does to Ma and things that Ma does to Jean Pierre which are utterly unthinkable and just unfathomable in their um, their cruelty, in their callousness, in their sadism, um, in their disrespect of the laws of nature in some cases, and the characters will obviously respond and go, "Stop doing this," and they'll go, "Make me." Then they stand together. And and that's the that's the thing where you have these characters who like are engaging in something which is like so far outside the bounds of like it's beyond risk aware consensual kink. They're not risk aware. They're risk creators. They are risk. Um, and it's it's so much really it's so much fun to to play with those dynamics, especially because of the way that um, immortality particularly affects that and. Also Jean-Pierre's inhumanity, not just that he's immortal, but that his body isn't human. And even though it like might appear human from the outside, people don't treat him as human. Um, he doesn't act human. And um, not just outside the bounds of morality, but like, you know, Jean-Pierre has loads of bones that M.A. doesn't. 
and he's got wings and um, and he's got different muscles. He's got another set of eyelids that he has to close when he's flying uh, to make sure his brains don't go out of his skull and whatever else. Like his body is different. Yeah. In many ways, it's more fragile. In many ways, it's stronger. But like part of their uh, relationship as they grow closer in Powder and Feathers is in um, Jean-Pierre basically making M.A. fight him. Um, first, like playing with like boxing and wrestling. Then as um, uh, Jean's brother Colm comes more into it, like learning to do things like throw knives. Um, and for a while in Emmy's case, refusing to learn how to use a gun. But as their dynamic improves, initially like Jean-Pierre can throw Emmy on the ground easily every single time. But the more M.A. trains with them and the more M.A. Um, is made not just to use his strength, but to use like his cunning, he's able to overpower Jean-Pierre. So you have this dynamic where Jean-Pierre is basically tailored M.A. to be able to dominate him. Um, because in the initial stages, he can't. He learns how. Mm. And then it becomes a, a fair match, if that makes sense, um, like physically um, and mentally, where they know each other very, very well. And they love each other and they, you know, they, they, these aren't like two nemeses at different ends of a battlefield. They live together. They're going to live together for the foreseeable. They're probably not going to part. But you have, you're going to have all these different people meeting these, you know, devoted husbands. Fucking torture each other. You just go, what is wrong with you? And they're like, <laughs> oh, we love each other. You know, it's just, you know, it's just love. And they're like, no. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Especially because uh, Jean Pierre is infamous um, for various crimes, and MA is going to be associated with that. And that will like impact the dynamic as well, the way in which they're responded to, not just as like an angel and a human, that angel, this human. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's really, really exciting in terms of potential as well, because it's mortality is so, so important as a power dynamic, as is uh, the monstrous uh, meeting the human. There's other power dynamics too that both of them can learn to take advantage of. It's like this net of um, of wires that they're crossing over each other to basically get the advantage and the upper hand um, to have fun. <laughs> End game. Horrible, terrible, terrible <laughs> men. Uh, it, it makes me so happy because um, I, I I write other relations like this. Um, because, yeah, it's like it's a big theme. Uh, my editor um, was going through um, one of my King Arthur pieces the last day and was just sort of like, you're obsessed with liberty and freedom. And I was like, yeah. Um, and like what that means within a relationship and within um, a position of power. Like um, like Jean-Pierre and M.A. Uh, are really something else compared to like a lot of these other dynamics, which are like very, very, you know, King Arthur and Merlin Wicht and uh, Gwen Hoivar, they have like a threesome thing going on. And then um, Lucian Pike, and uh, Gela Osgood in Lashton, they have their own horror dynamic going on. And I've got these different relationships like this, but none of them are as bad as, uh, as John and Emma, really. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, so you've talked a lot about, like, consent and liberty and freedom within relationships. Um, mm. What other, like, questions or themes or issues do you think sort of characterise your work? And how do you go about interrogating or exploring other kinds of dynamics? I think that um like I <laughs> I think it goes without saying by now that I really like trauma and I like <laughs> writing about trauma um <laughs> I know right it's uh it's um it's not just about trauma but I think um recovery from trauma and the fact that like you know trauma is such a um regardless of its nature you have these um these fractious means not just of um of, like the original injury but then the recovery yeah. because you don't feel the same after and do you have these ingrained responses to things whether they're rational or irrational uh and whether they're um subtle or <clears throat> explosive but um i think that that meets into the way that i there's like three main things that i would say that i delve into and they're um liberty and freedom yep um the concept of and like a devotion to duty and responsibility um and um and trauma and recovery from trauma and all those three things go together because yeah. your many people's ideas of duty and responsibility are impacted by their previous relationships with uh trauma and abuse and they're, they're that 
the way that that duty um, is held by them often impacts their sense of personal freedom or how they act within that personal freedom, how they allow freedom um, and liberty to others. Um, and sort of those three things work as a sort of trifecta of, um, of themes and, um, and I guess like potential characteristics that, um, that impact one another. Like when we think about what we're responsible for, it's so easy for us to get caught up in like the little things like um, being responsible for our own property if we own property or our own family if we have family and get on with our family or um, responsibility to ourselves or um, responsibility to work or to a crown or to a country and a sense of duty and loyalty. And the thing about that beauty is that it can be in a wider sphere, especially talking from um, standpoint of, um, of, of marginalization, like, you know, as, um, as a trans man, as a gay man, um, as someone who's disabled, as someone who's chronically ill, as someone who's neurodivergent, um, as somebody who's Welsh, um, as somebody who's, um, I don't know, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's just that layers of like intersection, but then also um, as someone who's white, um, like a responsibility that I have to like um, like uplift um, voices of color, also ensure that like while I'm like going through my work, that it's not just um, it's not just made for white people, yeah, and that um, and that I'm not including. Um, people of colour for the purposes of like showing to other white people that I can like write with colour instead that I'm like um that I'm treating uh, my characters of colour like with like a level of like um same like level of um like respect but also like complexity that I'm giving um my uh, my white characters um and my characters that like you know aren't um, indigenous or in some way a minority yeah especially because I think writing in a fantasy world it's um many authors fall into the trap of being like oh well I have fantasy races and therefore I don't have to think about um like real world racism like I write on earth all of that shit doesn't go away because there's now angels and vampires and fairies and they all live like secretly those are still like real dynamics so even though within the universe there's like fantasy speciesism well, there's like lots of different complex um conflicts between um fae and demons um whatever else but that isn't like that doesn't get away from um like racialist ideas from human ideologies um like historically and how things have changed through history um especially from an immortal standpoint as well writing things like that like writing characters who like fell in um they, one uh, character in band feathers his name is um orig uh, um, and he fell um in like the 12th century or something like just before the black plague uh, hit um, and he fell to a, um, a monastery, an abbey in Dublin. Um, and to look at him, you think, oh, he's North Indian. And so, um, like, throughout his, you know, like, he's never left Ireland. He won't leave Ireland. He lives He lives in Ireland. He's very, very Irish. And the people look at him and he's Daisy to look at. And the thing is that then, once he once he becomes a nurse in, like, the, the 20th century, 21st century, suddenly he's around loads and loads of other people who are from South Asia. Um, and he speaks all these different languages because all the angels speak a variety of languages. So, you know, he's speaking to people who are Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan. Um, and they're, you know, um, like he builds a community with other North Indians who think he's a North Indian too. Then he is. Like, it's not because he doesn't have like a that, like, relationship because then he raises his daughter be within that community and that massively impacts the way she thinks about her identity um and the way that like it impacts his identity too like for him like that identity was mutable until it wasn't anymore and now he wouldn't go away from what he has yeah um like you know like these are these are these are complicated like it's it's really really i think important to explore and to be aware of um not just because it's like it's fun and interesting but because like these ideas that we have about like um, race, gender, sexuality, many of them are new and many of them are, constru are constructed within like um, a white Western hege hegemony, which is like by its nature, like white supremacist, which like, you know, most homophobia, most transphobia, most um, 
uh, anti-disability thought within like eugenicist movements comes from white supremacy. It's the same thing. Yeah. So, you know, because it's the same ideology that sort of like creates a, a need to explore other things. So within like powder and feathers, like talking about power with uh, Jean-Pierre, for example, like Jean-Pierre um, is trans, um, it, all angels are trans, but, um, but Jean-Pierre like, particularly is trans um, because, and he looks like a trans man. Um, and like, well, people don't necessarily know until they see him undressed, but like he is like trans and he owns it, but he's got like a complicated feeling with his own gender because like he probably would have kept using it, its pronouns Mm. If somebody hadn't told him, well, no, you have to use he, him pronouns. You can't be in it. And he was like, why? You know, that's, you know, that's the thing. Like, so you have this man who's so beautiful, blue-eyed, blonde, tall, handsome, strong, built like a dancer, um, really, really good at speaking French, um, an orator, um, a fighter, a dancer. And you have him, you know, he and he's gay but like benefiting from um uh, a system that very very much looks to him because he's very well spoken and because he's educated it was a privilege for him to get that education and he resisted getting that education then um like being in a position as a man and particularly as a white man how he then relates to um to his brothers and sisters um and how he then talks about weaponizing his whiteness because it's another weapon in his arsenal and he's going to use it if he has it. But it's a com it's a complex feeling of, of power because it means he has power over others. But there's a difference between like the power he wants to have over others, a power that's very personal in nature and comes from a place of like fractured self and trauma versus a power he is allotted based off of um, like a white supremacist system, which isn't personal in nature and is instead um, doesn't just benefit from, but is designed to um subjugate his brothers and sisters right and that's a big part of it as well um sorry I really went off we've been thinking about this a lot <laughs> like, yeah like there's a, like the systemic uh power systems versus interpersonal power systems I guess is the mm-hmm. yeah there's just so much in it like yeah. there's just so much and like um I'm wondering like how you can how how you kind of explore that identity as well like um so the intersection of queerness and transness with um a non-human identity or like a, a monstrous and inverted mm-hmm. commas identity and how that works for you um when you're kind of writing these these dynamics and these characters like <laughs> I think that um it's I think that with um with gender and sexuality it's so interesting because like gender and sexuality are such human things but the the idea that we have of them is human like we, we like speak from a place of um our, that's informed by our culture and the way that we were raised um, and the way the society that we were raised into, regardless of whether it meshed with how we were raised or not. And um, the idea of um, personhood or, um, or identity in itself being transgressive before you actually action anything um, is something that I think about constantly. The idea that someone merely by existing um, is in some way committing a crime or is some way doing something wrong. By definition, that can't be true. It can't be a crime against nature for somebody to exist because they already exist. Nature yeah. has already allowed it. And so you have these ideas of um, original sin, which I don't actually explore that much in, um, in Powder and Feathers, even though uh, Jean-Pierre is a stout Catholic. But also, at any one time, he's like, we should burn the Catholic Church to the ground. And also, if you ever touch the Catholic Church, I'll burn you. And so he has this, <laughs> yes. which, which yeah. I, think, I think many Catholics do feel. But um, like that, it's, that, it's that complicated thing of like, um, you know, that, that thing of like, um, this is mine and I belong to this. And that I have a duty. Also, it's betrayed me and betrayed others. Um, and there's no easy answer to that because like it's a huge um, institution um, that's done unforgivable things to unforgivable amounts of people. But also there's the faith and there's the, the, 
not ideology, ideology, but the um, the the meter behind that faith and the strength of faith, especially like within a congregation and within a community. Yeah. Um, the ways in which that community can then betray one another um, in line of um, of greater power or prestige, but um, but with like the the intersection between like transness and queerness and um, and monstrosity, it's it's that idea of like um, of something that is w- without. Um, and outside of expectation and if it is without and outside of expectation it is dangerous to us the idea that is I think more recent um, in its fervor um, that in order to accept something you have to understand it Um, especially like this is like very much related to recent um, like uh, I hesitate to call call it discourse in recent like uh, <laughs> in, in recent complaints um about um about pride about identity whether it's stuff like um being very very focused on very very prescriptive terms for identity um like um lesbian trans man um asexual queer very having very very strict firm things of these as if they're taxonomical definitions of yeah. a species that is immutable and unchangeable as opposed to something that like many of us use in labels interchangeably we layer them they mean different things at different times but because people are so focused on this idea that in order to accept something i have to understand it and in order to understand it i have to understand everything about it it's like well no that's a very very entitled and quite um quite self-obsessed way of looking at these things um you know it's it's a very very um white view it's a very very cis view it's a very very heterosexual view but like more than that it's a very very privileged view because what you're doing is you're saying that other things don't have the right to exist unless i learn everything about them and then decide whether i approve it's that yeah it's like the idea of also having to have a vocabulary a working vocabulary to apply to things everything everything and like not possible yeah, yeah And if somebody uses a word in a different way to the way that you think that meaning, you know, the way that you you inscribe that meaning onto that word, mm-hmm. you, you get a sort of invalidation of that term. It's like that's not how it that's not quite how it works. Like <laughs> because <laughs> the way I use a term to describe my identity might be completely different to the way that somebody else understands the way that I use that term. Mm-hmm. But I don't have any other, I don't generally have vocabulary to explain myself to somebody. So I, I I kind of, I carry labels in my back pocket that I can go, oh, do you know what? I don't care if this is what you think I am. <laughs> and that's about as close as we get. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that kind of, um, yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking like, um, I, uh, your, your talk on the Minotaur, um that Mm. you did um which I sadly missed but I'm catching up on 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 YouTube so if anyone wants to that's on Rom Sam's YouTube channel which is available I think for people to to view at this time so if you want to hear about Mm -hmm. transness and disability and the minotaur um that's a whole talk um yeah so so thinking about um stuff like because I really like um the way that you um you play with different, I guess, like monstrous motifs uh, and like um, use those in, in developing character identities and dynamics. I think that um, it's the thing that I really, really enjoy about exploring um, like monstrous, um, especially monstrous bodies, especially like from the position of, um, of like queerness and transness, it's really interesting talking to people about different ideas of, um, of gender and sexuality. I said for like the longest time that like, I think that um, in the 21st century, the way that a lot of us use um, subcultures um, online uh, heavily influence um, our, not merely our gender presentation, but also our ideas of gender. So for example, when I put on my, um, on my Twitter profile that I'm a dandy, that's a very gendered term. It's a, it's a gender that comes with um, a specific performance and a particular idea of masculinity. It is masculine, but um, I would associate it with, um, with, uh, with trans men and, um, and butch lesbians and mask lesbians. I would associate it with more effeminate gay men not because it's actually um, a feminine uh, masculinity, because when I say dandy and when I say like associated terms like um, like rape or something similar, 
it's a masculinity that by definition is rooted in the past. Um, it's a masculinity um, of the 19th and 18th century. So we associate it with florid shirts um, and dainty wrists and handsome hands um, and maybe like long hair, maybe, you know, other ideas of um, that are outside of, um, of what we think of as masculinity in the 21st century, but are nonetheless masculine, just of a different era. It's my philosophy that like a lot of subcultures do the same thing. Like the idea of masculinity and femininity within um, a gothic subculture or with emos is very, very different to like the mainstream. So with punks, punks have a hugely different idea of um, of gender performance um, and gendered ideas. Like not just like in terms of masculinity and femininity, but when you explore people's um, non-binary interpretations of gender within a subculture, they're very, very different. And this is just a tiny, tiny fraction of what happens in um, in actual like real world. Um, real world as in um, as in multicultural, not real world as in like <laughs> punks don't exist. I mean, like <laughs> when you look at, for example, um, how um, how people's blackness might um, intersect with their um, experience of punk subculture and therefore their experience of punk gender um how um blackness or people's race or people's um like ethnic status or their religion or um or their gender or their sexuality sure might impact um their gender presentation and how these things are all um interconnected and how they they change subtly based on how um, the mainstream sees gender and therefore how that impacts us because like many of us are mirrors and whether we're like you know intentionally copying things or whether we're mirroring stuff and using the reflection as a weapon to bash people's eyes out these are things that we do so then when you bring monstrosity in and you look at species alongside these ideas of um, cultures, whether they are manufactured subcultures or whether they um, are built over time um, and handed down, then you have something completely different because how do you gender um, someone that doesn't have anything even remotely similar to, um, to human genitalia or human body who has tentacles, has uh, multiple limbs, whose uh, body shape and face shape follow similar planes who breeds in a different way who lays eggs for example or carries eggs um especially in these like um in these species that um have like different ideas of um of reproduction where they might have multiple partners involved as like part of the the species norm let alone as part of like a cultural norm and so once again, you explore like this idea of like transgression by existing um, and the idea that your existence itself is like outside of what is the bound of appropriate or polite or correct. Then you also have like gendered expectation. So for example, when I have minotaurs um, or I have vampires or I have fairies or I have demons who are in human society, specifically in like human uh, white Western society within um, the, the, the UK, or it's not the UK in Magic Beholden, but you get my meaning. Yeah. When they're in this, um, this society, which, um, you know, is still dominated by um, a white gaze, specifically by an imperial white gaze, although it's not quite the same within the magical universe, those positions of power are still present, who then have people whose, um, whose gender and sexuality is policed, almost by those lines you have these cultural clashes because other people have power it's not as simple um as um as some people in power might like it to be so you have different ideas of gender and sexuality clashing and causing um like not just interpersonal but into communal um disputes um but also then you have subcultures that are born of that so like when you look at like you know like a minotaur's presentation um within um like walking around, like they're seen as like, you know, very, very hyper-masculine people, regardless of their actual gender. And there's that whole thing going on. And then when you look at um, like, for example, like dried, like spider people, they're degendered because they're they're too foreign. Therefore, they're made into something other and outside of gender, which is a way that we dehumanize others. Even if they even if they don't identify with our ideas of gender, the way that we withhold gender 
it's often um, a way to say you were uncivilized or you were ugly or you were inhuman and therefore you were outside of our gender, you were outside of our personhood because gender is such a part of how we view someone as a person. Yeah, and like when you add in like the non-human human relationships to a to a um, a dynamic like that, mm-hmm. um, it's very it's very interesting to see where you know the human is kind of at um, at a big disadvantage mm-hmm. physically, and then in terms of that sort of power dynamic or the terms of um, that that power dynamic or that that kind of agency that the human has has to come from somewhere slightly different or um, they have to interact in a, in a particular way. And Learn I'm, to get par in a way that's different, but alongside. Sure. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about like some of your, um, some of your porn writing and your erotic stuff as well. And like how kink works as that, um, that kink dynamic works in a way mm-hmm. to um, create that sort of almost equal partnership. I don't know if this is, but do you, do you I'm trying to, um, so I, I talked about this a little bit with Steph Simpson, who writes um, disabled femdom characters and that kind of or um, the sub as having agency, which is something we we discussed um, because of that nature of consent. So that's a way of getting power back is by consenting to what is done to you. Um, and I just wondered if you play with that a lot you know how how do you kind of frame that in your stuff it's it's interesting because um I think that one of the things that like I um I haven't like written lots of stuff that's like there like um I've got a um a Peter Pan sequel that's um Hook and Smee yeah um the bosun's hook which um is like kind of on the background of them because as I'm finishing up and feathers and um and that is obviously like that's a story about disability and about chronic illness because you start with Hook who um, canonically within the book of Peter Pan is very very happy to um, to be disabled and he sort of says frequently that his arm his hook is better than his arm was and that if he was a mother and he says mother he always says mother he never talks about himself as a father he always talks about himself as a mother because he's gay Uh, um, but he talks about um, if he was a mother he'd wish his children had a hook instead of a hand like him and um, and then obviously like the plot of that story is that um, Hook develops um, a pneumonia which leads to asthma and him and Smee basically have to retire and you have Hook who's previously been really really pleased and thrilled with his um, his disability because he thinks he's you know he's hot shit which he is and suddenly he's dealing with a chronic illness which is also very disabling but isn't cool and isn't fun <laughs> and um yeah so yeah so you have like this and it's not that um that like the amputation um and that being an amputee never came with pain because it does and Smee in fact frequently has to remind him to put lotion um on the residual limb to make sure that the skin doesn't crack and to make sure he doesn't get infections and Smee is the one that helps um Hook put his harness on um to to put the prosthetic on but then also you have Smee who's always he's frequently been in this caretaker role now trying to get Hook to take his atomizer and Hook being like, no, <laughs> and then having an asthma attack because he's stupid. <laughs> but um, but he's also he's also angry because it's that idea of like your body is betraying you and your body is taking away freedom that you previously had. Uh, freedom that you never had, but you felt entitled to um, because you should have it. Everybody else has it. Why don't you? Which I think is a really, really complicated thing when we talk about disability and chronic illness, because there's that idea of like, it feels wrong to call it entitlement because like everybody has it. It's the norm or whatever, like a healthy body. People talk about a healthy body. Many of us don't have healthy bodies. Most of us by the end don't have healthy bodies. Most of us are in some way uh, ill or disabled or, um, or otherwise struggling with something that is like, you know, chronic or occurring um and it's infuriating and then um another serial that um, i'm probably going to go it's probably going to be my main one after i finish um powered and feathers is um, an uncommon betrothal which is about um a um a rich young gentleman whose family gets a new butler he's very 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 repressed um and uh, and the butler is just sort of like i'm gonna fuck him um but like the in the butler's uh the butler um was appointed by um his uncle who was previously the butler of the household and in his mind it's almost an arranged marriage he's sort of um like oh well um i'm sure he's gay he's never gonna marry 
it's added to because um, Alexis, who's the, the gentleman, um, had polio as a child and now walked, um, used, uh, was, um, wore braces for a very, very long time to, to help his legs. But he walks with a cane, he's constantly in pain. He's constantly struggling with, um, with cold chills. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's fragile. He can't do a lot of things that, um, that other young men his age can. But the thing is that, you know, you, ha you have these, these, these layers of things. And also the fact that like the, the uh, Henry, who's just sort of like, well, yeah, he's, you know, somewhat fragile, but like, he's not fragile where I care. And so you have those, those paradigms of like, um, abled characters with disabled ones, whether it's like a physical disability or whether it's um, like just something as simple as chronic pain, which can make such a, such a difference. And then also um, from a neurodivergent standpoint, um, sensory processing issues, whether yeah. that's with, um, I've got one character called Bo Horvus who's experienced a great deal of trauma, but even um, when he fell, he's an angel. Um, he um, they thought he was dead. They didn't know he was an angel. They tried to uh, magically resuscitate him with a magical defibrillator, which was still in its like relatively early stages of being developed. This is a few years before um, the mundane defibrillator was invented. Um, or maybe it was after. Either way, uh, they tried to, and they basically fried his nervous system. And now any, almost any touch on him is so overstimulating that he can't handle it. It's not pain per se, so much sensation that he can't cope with it. Yeah. Um, and then he's experienced a lot of medical trauma alongside that. But then also um, my vampires, my ancient vampires, uh, Marcellus and Genesius who appear in Heart of Stone. Yeah. Um, in the 21st century, they actually, they lock themselves away toward the end of Heart of Stone. Um, but by the 21st century, they're living as hermits in um, a, a cabin of the way of absolutely everything. Um, where Genesius never leaves the house and Marcellus leaves the house twice a week um, in fucking like plague doctor's gear to keep himself protected from the sun to make sure that the petrol and diesel fumes aren't irritating his nose and making him sick. He's light sensitive. All of the colours in supermarkets are overwhelming to him. He can't cope with it. He can't cope with um, the smells that he gets from everything constantly. The, um, the frequency buzz of wires, of pipes, of, um, of phone signals all around them, you can hear it. It, yeah. it hurts because it's so much of it. So you have these characters who have been around for 3000 years and suddenly they live in a world that's hostile to them. They can keep running, but they can't outrun this. There's too much of it. And you know, you have Genesius who previously loved people who would throw big soirees of hundreds of people, loves people to death. Who's like, I hope there's a cultural extinction event because he's just can't <laughs> deal with it. Yeah. And, and it's so, you know, when we think about how disability affects character, it's so often as simple as like, you know, disability made somebody evil because they were rejected by society and it's boring. Hmm. Whereas, you know, Hook, who was just sort of like, he was already evil and then he was disabled and then he was like, I'm now evil and hot. And, and you have some of that. Then you have characters who, don't become evil who are still kind but they're just tired just in pain they just want to be isolated where previously they wanted to be around people they can't be around people and then people ask why they can't and it's just sort of like don't you see yeah and also the that interlinks with culture as well too because like i think it, it, it's not a disability um but a thing that intersects with disability is um like a cultural illiteracy i want to say coming yeah. as a foreigner into a culture that you don't understand and you don't understand the rules for it's something i play a lot with um with humans going into fey culture and vice versa yeah Maybe a lot more important later on but also like um how fey live in human worlds because the fey their own lands are quite libertarian and have like really really complex laws then they come to humans where like suddenly you know cops exist and they find the premise disgusting and incomprehensible <laughs> They have to liaise to a certain extent with law enforcement who already harass them, really. But it's, it's the cultural clash, but it's more, it's not something that you can overcome by like a conversation because that's what these things are. Some things aren't possible to solve. They're not mutable and they're not things that you can um, just balance out by just chatting about it. Some cultures, some people's needs are antithetical to others. 
Yep. This isn't to say that somebody's evil. It doesn't say someone is trying to dominate or have power over others. It's a fact of life. And it's a fact that we have to acknowledge if we ever want to live in um, anything like a fair society or even a fair community. Um, and that's something I um, love as a theme, I'm obsessed with. Is there anything that you are going to tackle in the future or you want to tackle in the future that you um, maybe haven't done so much of? Related to relationships between immortals and mortals, um, the relationship between um, mortality and divinity. Um, there is a lot of God law that I'm going to be getting into with um, with demigods and spirits, um, the ideas of um, of worship. I did um, Espen, who's um, a Norse priest of uh, Freyr. Um, he's like in the medieval period. He's probably like one of my earliest characters because um, I haven't written anything earlier yet. Um, but there's a lot of um, relationships between like um, ideas of divinity, what divinity is, how someone can achieve divinity, why someone would want to, the idea of um, overlapping identities of divinity, ideas of um, divinity containing multiple facets, which simultaneously exist all at once in the same person and also um, can be explored um, like sort of like face by face by face, the different face that you give to other people, not just from an identity standpoint, but even from terms of um, of actual power to command. Um, yeah. uh, like to use Loki as an example, because he's really, you know, easy, everybody knows who he is. When you go to Loki and you ask him what he remembers of his childhood, he remembers multiple things. Yeah. Members growing up alongside Boulder and Thor and Tia, depending on which story he's remembering about himself. Yeah. And he also remembers something else that's older now and not as easy to remember. Then you have the gods who, who, for example, serve on different pantheons, the different names. They do so with different faces. And they remember these stories all at once. All of these things happened because of gods. Uh, the, the way that magic and belief culminates as it sort of channeled through them and gives them the power they have means that everything happened at once because it all happened. Yeah. They remember it separately. It changes. Then also because they have destiny also, like if you look at Loki, he already has scars around his eyes from the acid at Ragnarok. He already has the bound marks on his wrists. That hasn't happened yet. It might not happen, ending on what happens first. Except that it will happen because it's Ragnarok. It will come. Therefore, he has the scars. It is, it is as definitive his future as his past is, even though his past has happened in multiplicity also. And so, yeah, so that's so a really, really fun idea. So yeah. So, yeah. I love this so much. I love fate and um, playing with multiple ideas of fate and multiple levels of what's happened when and linear time being not a thing. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. Sorry. Or being a thing, but like being a linear time as a layer rather yeah. than a direct path at your trap. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, love it. No, but it's, <laughs> it's the same with the angels as well, because like the angels, um, like the host, the dimension that they fell from, um, was outside of, of linear time. So mm -hmm. yeah. all of the angels have fallen. It's happened. The fall has happened. The angels have been falling for thousands of years and will continue to fall for thousands more because they're falling into linear time. They're yeah. coming into something that they've never experienced before, not just having a physical corporeal body, not just expect being expected to suddenly have an identity where they never had an identity before. And different ones of them remember different things and remember different sensations and different feelings. But time, time is new to them. It never happened before. Yeah. Not to them. And so, you know, that the, the way that they relate to gods um, and spirits Indeed, and even when they ascend to uh, to godhood or divinity, it's different by definition. And it's really, really, really fun to, to play with that because it's just sort of like so much depth that you can go into, especially because like one of the, I think the, the cornerstone or the keystone of my universe and my world building, there's no such thing as truth, not objective truth, not truth that is definitive. There are people's experiences and interpretations of the situation and that's all. And um, and that's I, it's going to be so frustrating for people later on um, when they realise the points at which, like even within powdered feathers, they, every, firstly everybody lies, 
everybody's lying constantly. Jean-Pierre constantly lies. Column constantly lies. But because nobody says Column lies like Jean-Pierre lies, you don't realize that Column lies until you actually start adding things up. And then you go, wait a second. Asmodeus says, I don't lie. And then he lies <laughs> constantly. I love it. Because he's a big liar. <laughs> and, and then when yeah. you go outside of Powder and Feathers and you see other people, for example, talk about Jean-Pierre or talk about Asmodeus, the things that they say are so different to what these people say about themselves. And when you when you then go from story to story later on, when you have like um, angels in one place, um, then you'll have uh, Lashton, which is uh, Gellert and Pike. That's, um, that's a crime uh crime setting that's a smuggling town um, and there'll be a lot of crime stories there's a lot of gang warfare you have Camelot which is the seat of the king who's still in his coma but you, then you have the king regent Mervyn Wish you have the magical university there if you go north you'll be going into Schlachlug National Forest which has a huge amount of things going on between fairies between demons between uh, the, the actual inhabitants. Then if you go to Bristol, you have the Buyer Inn, which is going to be the subject of many, many, many things um, complicated within fairies and demons. And then you have the clinic and the hospital. And then you have all these other settings and all these other characters. And everybody's going to interact. That's the point. That's why there's hundreds of characters. Because they'll interact, they'll intersect. They're all existing in the same world and even if they interact in very very small and mundane ways you can see the crossover because it's not that big of um the of a world and that's the truth can't exist because all these different people have different experiences and different ideas and ideologies that affect how they interpret those experiences and then relate them to other people and the truth doesn't exist just like real life all you have is sources and you can decide how much you trust those sources and then you might change your mind later on when you're uh, introduced to new information that kind of says that everything you were told before was a lie I love it sorry I'm <laughs> so excited yeah I love that it's the the what is truth as a as a yeah. but yeah I love it especially because yeah. I've only been at this a year and I'm expecting it to be at this for like you know until I die so yeah. <laughs> hopefully another it's 30 enough. or 40 more yeah um but like you know there's a lot to do yeah no I love that I like playing with I like playing with stuff but in like a really micro family setting Mm -hmm. um because I really love the idea of very micro point of view and like one childhood memory as experienced by three different people Mm -hmm. and like how what actually happened you never actually know Mm. what actually happened in that moment because somebody will they all remember it slightly differently and they all have their own perspective on it and then they're that it's it's such a minor thing and it's probably something that you know something they're bickering about something now that they're in their 30s that happened when they were nine Mm. and like (laughs) but it's uh, or or, you know something that was so minor to somebody else had a a real impact on on you know and, and just I love how that shapes people and actually that event that you're remembering may not have happened at all mm-hmm. or not at all the way that you think it did mm-hmm. and I I just love that and you'll never get to the truth of it because you'll never know now it's gone it's happened mm-hmm. and it's gone and you'll never get back that that moment and you can never look at it objectively and your memory does such interesting things and layers yeah. on experiences so when you're thinking about something retrospectively you're not thinking about it as, you know, what actually happened when you were 10. You're thinking about it as you as an adult with layers of experiences, applying that back to a half-remembered thing that may have happened or may not have happened to you. (laughs) And then if you did go back in time and looked at it, you'd still be looking at it from your biased lens. Or if you were like looking at the memory, like the, the pensive in Harry Potter, (laughs) <laughs> how much is that influenced by what you think how much is that influenced by what the other person thinks yeah. like yeah yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's really really fun uh, yeah I love it. on that note do you have anything coming out or anything that you want to promote right now like, um you can read powder and feathers right now if you want um you can yeah. read it um we've got we're about five chapters from the end i think we're about five chapters away um the thing is that uh that when we come to it it's that it's the beginning 
of something far greater, uh, yeah. which is uh, intimidating. Even though I'm like, oh, we'll be working in this world for years. I'm just sort of like, <laughs> also like, this is actually like a big thing though. Because Heart of Stone, I love Heart of Stone. Um, Heart of Stone is my first book that came out um, August 2020, um, July 2020. It's it's very, very, you know, it's micro and it's contained and it's just two people who, who learn to love each other and learn to love themselves via the lens of loving each other. Whereas, you know, Jean-Pierre is an international political war criminal. Yeah. It's a bit different. Yeah. Slightly. <laughs> a little yeah. bit different. Um, yeah, like, it's, you know, it's ultimately a story about, hey, you can read it on um, World Anvil. Um, you can read it there for free. Um, and then if you want to subscribe to my uh, Patreon or if you have a medium subscription or about getting a medium subscription um you can read uh all my short stories uh now there's i don't know like 60 something like that there's a lot out right now that i've written i normally um post to five new pieces of content per week um on my patreon and my medium yeah um which can be new serial updates such as a pad and feathers it might be short stories it might be tweet thick it might be essays it might be blog posts it might be articles fabulous so much stuff so much Thank you ever so much for coming on. It's been really lovely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, That's all we've got time for. Thank you for listening. Um, On Thursday, we've got the next instalment of The Crows to listen to. Um, So stay tuned. Don't forget to subscribe. And we'll see you on Thursday. Bye now.